This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, gun owners were urged to hold off handing in their prohibited weapons by a lobby group claiming that discontent and resentment about the change in the law is widespread. This made headlines in the media, but did the story stack up? Also, the nation's biggest news organisation, Stuff, recently joined more than 70 other news organisations around the world in a cooperative bid to boost coverage of climate change. Others here have also joined in since then. This week we asked the editor-in-chief of Stuff why he's taken such a strong stance on the issue. As New Zealanders, it was easy to feel that climate change was an issue that was distant from us, either physically or in time, that it was going to happen, you know, it was going to affect people in Bangladesh or Kiribati maybe, but not... Auckland, and that if it was going to uh, happen, it would be happening in 2050 uh, rather than now. So our project is designed to make people realise that it's here and now. But before that, struggling news media companies here have been lobbying the government behind the scenes for some time for help. But this week, one of them put it all out in the open. I don't think it's sustainable to have more fragmented, smaller-scale players in an industry that is a high-cost to participate and if the market's not growing. So unless New Zealand starts a breeding programme and we get a whole lot more consumers or unless we get a whole lot more businesses that are willing to advertise, then the market is what it is. That was the chief executive of TBNZ, Kevin Kenrick, on Media Watch last weekend, talking to us about how hard it is to make money in today's media market. Though, as we'll hear, others in the media now say his company is one major reason why it is what it is. Last weekend on Media Watch, we also heard from Michael Boggs, Kevin Kenrick's counterpart at the media company NZME, which owns the New Zealand Herald and roughly half of the country's radio stations. And both media bosses said it was getting tougher to fund their journalism, which they insisted was still a core part of their businesses, but an increasingly vulnerable part. And in saying all that, both were also keenly aware that the government and its current Minister of Broadcasting and Digital Media is right now pondering a new strategy for public media funding, one that's under a lot of wraps as things stand. Indeed, ever since Chris Farfoy got the job as minister, news media companies have been telling him they need government help. Last December, Chris Farfoy told Media Watch this. Um, we've got traditional funding um, uh, of public media um, via New Zealand On Air um, to the likes of Radio New Zealand, which we're on now. Um, but the media is changing, uh, and I think we shouldn't cut ourselves off to at least having conversations about how do we make sure that the con- content that we care about gets in front of New Zealanders to watch, read and listen to. The, the old school way of thinking, I think, um, has uh, was fine back then, um, but media is changing so fast, uh, and some of the powers that we are up against, or some of the um, entities that um, we're up against, um, are big global players. So I think we've got to play a wise local game and at least have a lot of conversations. And that was music to the ears of media company bosses at the time. Since then, they've had some conversations, and Chris Farfoy's been lobbied even harder to make more public money available to private media companies or to tilt the media market in their favour a little. The minister was in the room as an observer when New Zealand On Air met with news executives from major media companies recently. Those discussions weren't on the record, but we do know that pleas for help were made and their financial woes were hammered home. Last weekend, the team from Two Cents Worth, a podcast co-production between the newsroom and RNZ, asked Chris Farfoy about rumours of RNZ and TVNZ merging. We're having a very good look at what the future of public broadcasting is in New Zealand. 
And last Thursday, the pressure on Chris Farfoy was cranked up by MediaWorks, the owner of TV channels including three and the other half of the nation's radio stations. First, there was an article based on an interview with MediaWorks chief executive Michael Anderson, which appeared on the spin-off website. In it, Mr Anderson complained that state-owned TVNZ was aggressively commercial in the market at the expense of the industry. And he told the spin-off, it's not just his company that could be a casualty, but our entire democracy. A democratic government has to protect democracy. A government would need to do what it needs to do to make sure that there's news diversity. And certainly, the government could never find itself in a situation where there's a monopoly on broadcast news. It doesn't work for democracy. Michael Anderson also urged the government to make TVNZ's main channel, TVNZ1, non-commercial. And that's not a new call. Previous bosses at MediaWorks have called for this many times because it would immediately boost MediaWorks' bottom line and their prospects. And interestingly, it's also a long-standing policy plank of Labour's coalition partner, New Zealand First, who would want to say in whatever media funding policy the minister does settle on. Now, the author of the spin-off piece, Duncan Greaves, said that MediaWorks' sustained losses in television could even mean the closure of the company's TV channels sooner rather than later. Judging by the demeanour of our media executives, that point is closer than any of them would like to admit. However, the chief of MediaWorks News Operations had no qualms about admitting that in a piece published on his own NewsHub website the very same day. Under a picture of a shattered TV set and the headline, The Problem with News in New Zealand, MediaWorks Chief News Officer Hal Crawford said this. I'm angry that my newsroom, NewsHub, is part of a business struggling to keep its head above such polluted waters. Like his boss, Hal Crawford blamed TVNZ for fouling the nest. They inherited their infrastructure and audience from a public broadcaster and pretended for a few years to be a commercial enterprise. But when the going got tough, instead of shrinking, they were allowed to act in a non-commercial way. And echoing his own boss, Michael Anderson, Hal Crawford said this. Unfortunately, all the clichés about the free press and democracy are right. We need news to keep this lemon on the road. So that's two Australian executives at the top of New Zealand's biggest private broadcasting company clearly not happy with their lot here or the media landscape and they both want the government to change it without delay. And one of their loudest local news voices at MediaWorks got the memo. Mr Farfoy, please help us. Climate change, yes. The climate has changed. You're doing. Don't kill us at the same time. Change the game. Make it fairer, please. But David vs Goliath, come on, man. The AM show host Duncan Garner there calling out Chris Farfoy, a former TVNZ rival when both of them were reporters in the parliamentary press gallery just 10 years ago. And Duncan Garner echoed his own bosses about the other media being in the same boat. It means the level playing field's disappeared, gone. Much harder for three to survive, but not just us. This is not sour grapes. NZME, Fairfax, we can only contract. We, we, we can't compete. We can't compete when the other guy's rules are, are different. Ultimately, we die. Now, the message wasn't subtle and the target was obvious, but to reinforce it, the AM show turned down the lights in the studio. I have a challenge for the broadcasting minister, Chris Farfoy. Um, Step in and save New Zealand television and New Zealand news channels before it's too late and and the lights somehow go out. Oh, it's too late. (laughs) But Chris, I know you're up for this. There's money in the kitty. Going back to the bad old Stalinist days of Putin's channel only and no one else sort of exists, it's simply not an option, surely. You've got to help. Now, it remains to be seen just how persuasive the broadcasting minister finds this argument. Almost 30 years ago, the government did step in to change the law when the first version of TV3 nearly went under, trying to compete with the former market monopolist TVNZ, which certainly did act aggressively against it back then. 
The law was changed back then to allow foreign owners to buy TV3 and keep it and competition alive in the TV marketplace. But that was in the days long before the internet and video on demand, and Sky TV was merely a bold and loss-making idea. But after years of accusing the industry's critics of talking too much about its problems, it's extraordinary now to see a company using its own outlets to do the same and to force them into the face of the government at the same time. I'm going to visit every district. I'm going to speak to gun owners. Colfco can join me, come along with me, and we will speak to the people who are surrendering firearms, and we'll see what the overwhelming sentiment is. That was Deputy Commissioner of Police Mike Clement telling RNZ last Tuesday he would personally go with any grumpy gun owner to any firearm surrender venue and chat face-to-face with them about any issues they have about the gun buyback and surrender scheme. Now, the day after the first collection in that scheme in Christchurch, way back in June, RNZ also tried to gauge the sentiments of those who'd turned up to turn in their guns and found they weren't happy, but mostly OK with it. But those willing to speak to me agreed the process was simple, but many were steadfast in disappointment. I'm sad, but hey, yeah, I'm a big boy, so I live with it. It's real sad that, hey, that this has had to occur. But it is what it is. They make the laws, we just abide by them, yeah. Now those keen enough to comply with the new law at the first possible opportunity you can assume would be on board with it. But almost a couple of months later, how many gun owners are on side with the new law change? How many are resenting it or even resisting it? Well, in the media, that depends on who you hear from. The group Colfo, which the Deputy Police Commissioner spoke of earlier, is the Council of Licensed Firearm Owners. Colfo is the most commonly quoted source in news stories about gun owners' attitudes or grievances, and always via its spokesperson, Nicole McKee. Back in April, Colfo said that she alone would represent the united views of the shooting groups that make up Colfo, supported, it says, by a small media team preparing key messages. And the key message since then is that they're definitely not happy with the law change or the buyback process so far, which they described as the thin end of the wedge being driven through the firearms community. Colfo said this week the compensation is not enough and some collection events currently run by police have been hostile environments and spokesperson Nicole McKee described it all like this. The first to return their firearms are the most conscientious so they're naturally taken aback by the intense treatment, herded, guarded and interrogated. Nicole McKee and Colfo have urged gun owners to hold back from returning their weapons for now in a statement on Monday. But that same day, the headlines overseas about the gun buyback scheme were pretty positive. CNN, The Guardian, The New York Post and many more outlets around the world reported that more than 10,000 weapons have been peacefully surrendered so far. And in Australia, the ABC's main evening news show, PM, reported it this way. A month after New Zealand's gun buyback scheme began, more than 11,000 firearms have been surrendered to police. Despite more than one million guns in circulation in New Zealand, police and gun control advocates say they're happy with the progress. But PM's listeners in Australia also heard that many gun owners here were not, via Nicole McKee. Well, we see that there is quite a number of New Zealanders who have taken up the opportunity of handing in their firearms at collection events around the country, but it's still quite a small portion of firearm owners who are handing in when we estimate that there are about 250,000 firearms out there that need to come back. Well, that is a lot of guns and a lot more than the 11,000 or so handed in so far. But Dr Hira Cook, the co-founder of Gun Control New Zealand, told the ABC this. 
it's not very clear how many there are. But starting off with 10,000 in the first month is good. After which ABC reporter Julia Holman asked Hera Cook this. And how strong has the pro-gun lobby been in terms of trying to fight this new legislation? Well, they've had three decades of being on the winning side of gun law reform. That is, they've had nearly three decades of preventing any substantial reform. We're hoping that it's going to be different, and we think it will be different. We think that Christchurch really did change people's attitudes. Now, earlier in June, the ABC had asked Nicole McKee if gun owners here would actually comply with the law changes, and she told them this. In New Zealand, there are a number of firearm owners that are really angry at the way that they've been treated. You know, we had a foreign terrorist come here and commit this atrocity, and yet the finger and blame is being pointed at law-abiding people. Are they going to hand back in? That's not really true, is it? I mean, the individual is facing trial. That process is taking place. I haven't seen any one blame gun owners, but I have seen a government say, well, we need to make sure these weapons are no longer available here. Yes, and what we are seeing as the firearms community is the blame being put on us. So you may not see it where where you're sitting, but we're feeling it where we are and we're experiencing it. After that, the Council of Licensed Firearm Owners last month joined gun city retailer David Tipple to challenge the gun law reforms legally and the buyback prices in a campaign called fair and reasonable. Now the website for that says hundreds of thousands of dollars could be needed to fight in court for full compensation of, in its words, the loss of your hobby, sport and lifestyle. And the media is part of this push. Providing spokespersons to make fair comment on the issue to help responsible journalists limit the influence of bigotry and false claims. But just who is it that the campaign claims to represent? Last month, the New Zealand Herald reported on the campaign under the headline Gun Lobby Campaigns for Hundreds of Thousands to Fight for Fair Compensation. Council spokeswoman Nicole McKee told the Herald that about 90% of the council's 40,000 members were absolutely furious at the price list. Now that was an interesting quote on two counts. Firstly, 40,000 is a lot of members. Only a handful of national lobby or even hobby groups could have so many signed up members in this country. That figure is repeated in a few recent news stories and as far back as December 2017 when Stuff reported Nicole McKee is saying they were concerned about what lay on the horizon for gun owners. And that was long before the post-Christchurch mosque massacre gun law changes. And if nine out of ten of them are now furious, as Nicole McKee told The Herald, well that's a real issue. Dr Hera Cook from Gun Control New Zealand is also a lecturer at Otago University's Department of Public Health in Wellington, where her colleague Dr Marie Russell is a research fellow. And this week the pair put out a statement casting doubt on that figure of 40,000 members. They said that the Colfo chair, Michael Dowling, had told them that the organisation had reported that number to New Zealand police two years ago. And Michael Dowling told them since then the membership of Colfo has definitely increased, while the gun law reform has been such a hot topic. But when Dr Cook and Dr Russell checked publicly available information, they had their doubts. Colfo has nine affiliated firearms organisations and they looked at the annual financial statements of all these bodies to the Incorporated Societies Register. They divided the annual income for each of these bodies by the membership fees they charge and concluded that the actual combined membership figure of all those outfits was probably closer to about 20,000 or around 7-8% to 8% of the licensed firearms owners in New Zealand. 
The Colfo website says that Colfo members also include individual firearm owners as well as the members of the National Firearms Organisations. And Colfo told Dr Cook and Dr Russell this week those individual memberships lie somewhere between 600 and 1,000. So still nowhere near 40,000 members in total. But this week I asked Dr Russell, does it really matter if the media report the figure as 20,000 or 40,000? I think it does matter because... That's the basis on which the organisations are presenting themselves to the public and I suspect also they're presenting themselves like that to the government. So we're challenging the uh, Council of Licensed Firearms Owners to let us know, you know how many members they actually have, how many people they represent. It is hard to know how many people support and how many people oppose the forthcoming law reforms and that's why it matters, because we need to know um, whether they are actually representing a large proportion of the uh, firearms owners or not. But in fact, most people in New Zealand who own firearms, to my understanding, don't belong to any club. Indeed, but if those organisations, whether they have a few members or or, or many, uh, there are, I think, eight or nine of them, if they've decided they want Colfo to be their point of contact and, and they have decided amongst themselves that they'll have one spokesperson, I mean, the media is more or less obliged, aren't they, to, to deal with that organisation and that spokesperson? It certainly is a legitimate voice that Colfo has, but we just want to know how, how extensive it is. I haven't seen any evidence that they've surveyed their members and normally you would pick that up on their websites or on their Facebook pages. I can't see any evidence that they have surveyed their members. So how are they getting to that 90% figure? That was Dr Marie Russell, research fellow at the University of Otago's Department of Public Health in Wellington. So how many gun owners does the Council of Licensed Firearm Owners speak for, and has it surveyed their opinions on the gun buyback scheme and the compensation offered? Well, Media Watch asked spokesperson and secretary Nicole McKee this week, but she declined to be interviewed. She said Colfo estimates that around 40,000 people are affiliated to it through licensed firearm owners and their membership of specialist organisations and clubs and importers and retailers as well. She described the conclusions of the Otago University researchers as fake news from people using taxpayer money to pursue an anti-gun personal agenda. And there was no response from Nicole McKee or Colfo on the question of whether it surveyed its membership at all about the gun buyback scheme and the compensation offered. Last week, the Sunday Star Times ran an article asking the question, is the New Zealand media eco-friendly? And this was more of an environmental stocktake of the media businesses themselves than an analysis of their editorial commitment to reporting environmental issues. So we learned, for example, that Stuff uses vegetable-based ink, RNZ has a sustainability working group, MediaWorks aims to cut office waste in half, NZME uses the most sustainable paper on the market, the spin-off aims to become carbon positive, and so on. But in the scheme of things, how the media report climate change you'd think would have a far greater impact on the planet's future than the actions of any single company in-house. And as Jeremy Rose now reports, an international week of climate change reporting next month, which most of New Zealand's major media companies have signed up to, will provide a new opportunity to compare the efforts of the local media with their international counterparts. When the phony war turned hot, then I was listening every night with my dad. France fell. The British were driven into the sea at Dunkirk. Hong Kong and Singapore fell. Pearl Harbor was bombed. Guam and the Philippines were overrun. 
one defeat after another until it looked as if the fires of fascism were going to devour the world. But Murrah and his boys just kept reporting nonstop. That was veteran US broadcaster Bill Moyers giving the closing address at the Covering Climate Change Now conference in New York in April. His message was clear. Climate change is every bit as much as a threat now as fascism was in the 1930s. And journalists need to follow the lead of the likes of war correspondents Ed Murrow and William Shearer. With Europe just hours away from going up in flames, Murrah and Bill Shearer, partners, one in London, one in Berlin, were ordered by the powers at CBS to feature an entertainment broadcast spotlighting dance music from night spots in London, Paris, and Hamburg. They say there's so much bad news out of Europe, they want some good news. Murrah in London snapped to Shara in Berlin over the phone. To hell with those bastards in New York. It may cost us our jobs, but we're just not going to do it. And Bill Moyers continued... Our phony war is over. The hot war is here. There are long stretches of quiet. Then suddenly Houston is inundated, paradise burns, and San Juan disappears. The networks put their reporters, brave men and women, out there in raincoats battered by rain and the wind, or standing behind police bearers as the flames consume the far hills. And yet we rarely hear the words climate change or climate destruction. Just as for a long time at the Weather Channel, reporters were forbidden from even uttering the word global warming. Earlier this year, think tank Media Matters reported that US television network ABC's World News Tonight spent more than seven minutes reporting on the birth of royal baby Archie in the week after he was born, more time than the programme spent covering climate change during the entire year of 2018. And the other network channels weren't much better. Media Matters compared coverage of Archie's birth with a UN report claiming up to one million species could go extinct due to climate change, which was published the same week as the arrival of the baby, who was eighth in the line for the British throne, and found Archie won hands down on all the major networks. 22 of the US's 50 largest newspapers failed to report the UN report at all. The Covering Climate Now conference, which Bill Moyers was speaking at, was organised by the Columbia Journalism Review, The Guardian and US magazine The Nation in response to that lack of reporting and in an attempt to bring some urgency to the question of climate change. Conference organisers have declared an international week of concentrated climate change coverage next month to precede a United Nations summit on climate change in New York that begins on September the 23rd. More than 70 news organisations around the world have already signed up, including Stuff, The New Zealand Herald, RNZ, TVNZ, Newsroom and The Spin-Off. Covering Climate Change Now's co-founders Mark Hertzgaard and Kyle Pope have written... We're not here to tell people what to write or broadcast. All that's required is for each outlet to make a good-faith effort to increase the amount and the visibility of its climate coverage, to make it clear to their audiences that climate change is not just one more story, but the overriding story of our time. 
So what do the New Zealand media outlets that have signed up to covering climate change now have in store for us? Well, none of them were particularly keen to share any details at this stage. Spin-off editor Toby Manhire wrote... We're planning a series of pieces, including at least two substantial features which are underway, and a bunch of shorter stories across a range of sections. The Members Project means we can afford to commission on important subjects like this, where before I just wouldn't have had the budget to do anything substantial. One news organisation that has already significantly ramped up its climate change coverage in recent months is Stuff. Back in November, it launched Quick Save the Planet. Stuff Editor-in-Chief Patrick Crudson wrote at the time... Despair isn't the worst reaction to climate change. Complacency might be. Under an avalanche of foreboding news, sea level rises, melting ice sheets, accelerating species extinction, heat waves, ocean acidification, despair comes naturally. And he continued, Solving climate change, or at least averting cataclysm, isn't as simple as planting more trees, eating less meat and swapping your car for a lime. Individuals can make a difference and inspire a ripple effect of change. But considering the scale of this problem, that won't be anywhere near enough. We need systemic change that shifts communities, companies and countries. The classic Kiwi-she'll-be-right attitude won't serve us here. Without urgent and comprehensive action, she won't be right. So what is Stuff planning for covering climate change now? That's the question I put to Stuff Editor-in-Chief Patrick Crudson. We've had an ongoing climate change project since November last year called Quick Save the Planet and our goals there very much align with the broader Covering Climate Now project in that we wanted to use our status as the uh, country's biggest homegrown website to just really pound away at climate change coverage on a regular basis to increase the intensity of it and to make the problems of climate change feel urgent and tangible and unignorable. We felt, as New Zealanders, it was easy to feel that climate change was an issue that was distant from us, either physically or in time. You know, it was going to affect people in Bangladesh or Kiribati maybe, but not Auckland. And that if it was going to uh, happen, it would be happening in 2050 uh, rather than now. So our project is designed to make people realise that it's here and now. Just to stop you there, because you've produced a lot of content, but I'd have to say as a regular reader of the print edition, I'm surprised when I go to the Quick Save the Planet tab on your website of all of this kind of copy, because it doesn't seem to be dominating the news or the front pages. Uh, I think it possibly depends on which stuff, newspaper, uh, you're picking up. But a lot of the climate change coverage we're producing is used widely around our newspapers and actually it's it's all produced by the same pool of reporters. The, those same reporters work for stuff and they work for the newspapers. Just as an example of that, I think it was on the weekend that you had a big front page story on whether they should move the port area in Wellington where the cruise ships come in. So potentially important for tourism, everything else. No mention in that story of any climate implications of that industry, which is known to be a major contributor. Is that likely to change? or Because it feels slightly schizophrenic. That's a really good point, and it's something that our readers have told us recently as well, is that they don't want us to isolate climate change coverage or have it in a ghetto uh, where this story is about climate change. They want to see climate change as an issue infused through other coverage so that in a story like that, we should be looking at it through a climate frame as well as through the other lenses we, we might look at it. 
you mentioned that readers have given you feedback. I take it that was in the survey that I think ended in June. You had it up online. What were the results of the survey? So we surveyed for about a week, and it was asking our readers about climate change coverage in particular. So not climate change an issue, but how the media treats it and how stuff has treated it. And we had more than 15,200 responses, which was about 15 times more than I had hoped we would get. So there were probably seven broad themes. People wanted to avoid being too depressed about climate change. So it's easy for climate change coverage to be a series of bleak forecasts and predictions. And there was a clear message that we needed to balance that with giving people some hope so they didn't despair and feel like there was nothing they could do. Related to that, people wanted information on the personal contribution they could make, and that can be things in, in individuals' lifestyles or the way households operate, but it can also be how people could use their consumer power or their their vote to influence climate change policy. They wanted to make sure that we were going to hold the powerful to account, so look at the behaviour of the big emitters and of local authorities and the central government. Not to forget about farming, and this theme had bits of feedback that came from opposite ends of the spectrum. So a lot of people saying there isn't enough focus on uh, animal agriculture as a source of New Zealand's emissions. And then a lot of other people saying farmers are doing a lot to combat climate change but don't get credit for it. So either way, people wanted to see more of a focus on the rural sector. Then just to increase the volume, many of the respondents just wanted us to do more and to be more prominent about it, to have more stories on the front page of our newspapers, to have a climate change section really prominent on the Stuff homepage. Since then, we've added climate change to the Stuff navigation bar on our homepage. The sixth theme was, in some ways, to go back to basics. Climate change can be quite a complex issue. You know, There are scientific concepts involved. There's this a soup of acronyms and there was a desire for us to simplify and restate and reiterate the basic concepts of climate change to help people understand in each story. And then lastly, without being too speculative, the respondents to the survey did want us to give a sense of what was to come, you know, what their lives might be like in 2030 or 2050 or their descendants' lives might be like in uh, 100 years' time. I imagine some of that 15,000 were climate change sceptics, deniers, whatever we want to call them. How significant was that and do you need to take them into account? Uh, yes, there were some and they were a, uh, a loud voice in the survey responses but not a disproportionate voice. I think it's important to realise that climate change is very much a mainstream concern now. There was an Ipsos poll uh, a couple of weeks ago that said that 79% of New Zealanders were concerned about climate change, and that was up 7 percentage points just in a year. And, and there's sort of a, in the political sector and in the business sector, it's very much considered to be a mainstream issue now. So I think it's important to focus on how climate change will affect most people and how most people will respond to it rather than worrying about the vocal but pretty small fringe of people who uh, decide to take issue with the accepted science. I counted up the travel advertising on Monday in the Dominion Post, which is is the travel day, so it's got the most, but it's seven full pages of travel advertising. To what extent are you in a difficult position as an organisation committed to reporting on climate change, you've stated you accept that it's urgent, 
But a lot of your advertising, whether it's travel or motor cars or probably Fonterra, are major contributors to the problem. That's a conundrum that, honestly, I don't really have an answer to. That's true. It's fair to say that companies that are large emitters advertise with us. It's also fair to say that stuff is a commercial news operation and we fund ourselves through advertising. So I would choose to say that uh, it's better that we continue to exist and can publish not just on climate change but on all the other social good that we deliver through our journalism uh, rather than cutting ourselves out of business by cutting off all our advertising. When you launched Quick Save the Planet, you wrote an editorial and I'm going to quote one of the things you said. I'm not speaking from the moral high ground. I'm a middle-class hypocrite. I'm worried about climate change but my family drives two cars and you won't catch me on a bike. I eat meat daily. I love international travel. I use heaters when I could rug up. Now, I noticed that you're actually taking a tour sponsored by stuff to China, so you're encouraging people to travel. Mm. Is that hypocritical? Well, like I've said, I fully uh, admit to being a hypocrite in that regard. And actually, I think that that's a harmful standard to hold people to, to say that you can only care about climate change if you live a zero emissions lifestyle and your behaviour is perfect and impeachable. I think that kind of focus on individual responsibility gets in the way of the discussions that we need to have about systemic change uh, and how society responds. But systemic change might include discouraging package tours as a form of tourism and cutting back on tourism. Yeah, that, that's true. Uh, and I also would agree that individuals like me can and should make lifestyle changes. Today, I think it was today, you've launched a new series where people can ask questions with the conversation, the originally Australian-based mm-hmm. academic publishing and um, the New Zealand Science Centre. And today's one was, is it impacting on our health? And it actually had a, a quite positive aspect to it, which was if we do those types of things, if we cut down on meat, if we do more exercise, if we cycle more, walk more, it's going to benefit the community health and our individual health. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned, there's a lot of stuff about cars in our media, I think because of the advertising partly. No bicycle column. Any, Any thoughts of introducing some more cycling coverage? That's an interesting suggestion. Perhaps that's something we should look at. Yeah, perhaps that's something we should be looking at. Reviews, you know, tr- treating cycling like we do motoring in terms of reviews of new bikes. That's an interesting suggestion. I hadn't thought about it. The veteran broadcaster Bill Moyers spoke at the launch of this project, and he compared it to the beginning of the Second World War, and the way that the media, the American media, wanted entertainment news rather than the hard news about the terrifying prospect of the war with fascism and he's called for a similar effort now that was required then is is, are those the terms that you said in too that was uh, another theme that came quite strongly from our reader survey a lot of respondents said treat this like a world war treat it like a crisis treat it like an emergency give it that sort of scale of coverage that was the editor-in-chief of Stuff, Patrick Crudson, speaking to Jeremy Rose about covering climate change now, an international week of climate reporting beginning on the 16th of September. Well, that's all we have for you from the Media Watch team for this week, but we'll be back again at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again for Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.